Good morning, and welcome to the Donuts and Divorce podcast, where in the early morning hours, fueled with some strong coffee and donuts, we tackle the hard topics about families going through a separation or divorce. I'm Dorothy O'Neill, your host. I'm a partner and founding member of BOK Law and Mediation Services, located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I practice in the field of family law. I also serve as a neutral mediator in divorce and separation cases, and I'm a trained collaborative divorce practitioner, which means I can offer a unique divorce process used to settle cases outside of court, listening to the specific needs of the family. Today's topic is all about the myths of family law cases. I can't tell you how many times I'm in a consultation or just in a discussion with my client and they'll say, well, what about this? Or what about that? I've heard this or I've heard that. And a lot of them very much are just myths. Um, I don't know how they got started, these dirty little rumors, but um, they're not actually the law. So I wanted to kind of go through some of those. I came up with about 14 and we're going to go through them very quickly, but I'm sure there are just tens of even hundreds more. (laughs) Um, There's so many that I hear. Um, But these are the major ones that I hear. So I just kind of wanted to dispel these myths with you. um, So you're a little more educated on what the law actually says. So number one is a biggie and one I commonly hear, which is mothers receive preference in custody cases in Pennsylvania. And that's absolutely a myth. Um, In fact, there's even law about it. So in our Pennsylvania statute, Section 5328, subsection B, there is uh, language that says gender neutral. And what it says in there is in making a determination under subsection A, which is about custody, no party shall receive preference based upon gender in any award granted under this chapter. Again, talking all about custody. So it is incorrect to believe and think that our judges are giving preference to mothers in custody cases Maybe that was a thing of the past, but it's certainly not a thing now. Um, So there you have it. (laughs) Number two is everything in a divorce is split 50-50. Again, very common that I hear this. People come in and they're like, well, don't you just split it down the middle? Isn't it just 50-50? It's actually not. In Pennsylvania, we have 13 equitable distribution factors that the court must apply in dividing up the assets and debts of a marital estate. And I say equitable distribution, if you've listened to any of my previous podcast episodes, we are an equitable distribution state, which means that we do look at these factors in determining the overall settlement of the assets and debt. So it's, again, not 50-50 division, not automatic. Um, We look at all of the circumstances of the parties, which can include income disparity, education, um, what assets they have in their name, if they're, you know, what assets they have available to them. Um, So those are all some of the factors involved in dividing up your marital estate. So not just 50-50, not an automatic. Number three, you don't have to pay child support if you have 50-50 custody of your children. Again, this is a myth. This is not true. Um, What the court will look at is if you do have a true 50-50 schedule, they'll look at whether or not there's an income disparity between the parents. So for instance, if there's a lower wage earner, that lower wage earner could potentially still ask and receive child support from the higher wage earner. And conversely, a higher wage earner could still end up paying child support um, if they have 50-50 custody. Now, when they are calculating the child support, the the higher wage earner is going to get a nice um, reduction in child support due to having 50-50 custody. 
Um, so they won't be paying the full-on maximum amount of child support, but they still may have to pay something. Um, so keep that in mind. Even if you have 50-50 custody, you may still have to pay child support. Now, the closer in income of the two parties, the more likely you will not have to pay child support. But if there is a large disparity, you absolutely could. Number four, one year from the date you separate from your spouse, the court will automatically enter a divorce decree. Let me tell you this, the court doesn't automatically do anything. So even in the best of circumstances where the parties uh, reach an agreement to the terms, have signed an out-of-court settlement agreement, um, the court is still not going to do anything automatically. You still have to tell the court via a pleading that you have reached a resolution of your case. You still have to abide by all of the procedural requirements the court makes us do before you can ask for that divorce decree. So they're never going to just shoot you a divorce decree in the mail and say, there you are, you're divorced. Too bad if you didn't um, come to an agreement on the terms. That will never happen. Um, so you do still have to notify the court. You still have to file certain uh, pleadings in order to get that divorce decree. Number five, if a parent stops making child support payments, the other parent can withhold custody of the children. And conversely with that, if a parent withholds custody of the children, the other parent can stop paying child support. Again, big no-no, big myth. Um, just because a, a parent stops making child support does not give the right of the other parent to withhold custody. Um, just because a parent withholds custody does not give the right of the parent paying child support to stop paying child support. Most of the time, there are going to be court orders in place or agreements in place regarding this. And so if there's a violation of custody, for example, if somebody withholds custody, the um avenue to address it is to file a contempt action. Um, similar with the child support. If somebody stops paying child support, you file a contempt action. Um, but there's no automatic. It's not one for the other. You know, if there's no custody, there's no support and vice versa. Number six, if one spouse commits adultery, the other spouse automatically receives a higher percentage of the assets. Or in other words, somehow gets a leg up in the divorce. And I get this all the time. So basically, I get the, the questions of, well, I have proof of my spouse's infidelity. Um, can we use that in court? And my response usually is, what are you looking to achieve with this? Because Pennsylvania is a no-fault state, which means that they're not looking at whose fault it was in dividing up the assets. Because remember, a divorce really is a financial equation. It is dividing up all of your assets and debts. And so Pennsylvania is a no-fault state, so they're not even considering fault when they're dividing these assets. Um and even further, I mentioned before that Pennsylvania uses those equitable distribution factors in those factors, in those 13 factors, fault is not listed. So again, even if you prove the infidelity or the adultery, that does not mean you're going to get more assets in the divorce. Now, it could come into play um, as a, an aside here. Um, fault is one of the factors in alimony. So it could come into play there. But again, it is one of many factors. So it's not a slam dunk. It's not a, a guarantee. So you definitely want to talk to your attorney about how that could impact your case if it does at all. Number seven, each spouse gets to retain 
of his or her retirement accounts, like a pension or a 401k or an IRA, since that spouse is the person who actually made the contributions to that account and grew that account during the marriage. So that's also not true. Um, In Pennsylvania, the courts don't really care about title. They look at what you acquired during the pendency of your marriage. So from the date of your marriage to the date of your separation, what assets did the two of you acquire? Um, It doesn't matter how they were were titled when you acquired them and they will just consider them marital and that they could be subject to division. So even though it's your pension, you worked really hard for that pension all those years, you contributed to that pension. If it was uh, acquired during the marriage, it's going to be considered marital subject to division in Pennsylvania. Number eight, children get to choose which parent they want to reside with at insert age, whether it's 10, 12, 14, 16, whatever. So again, this is false. Um, One of the factors the court considers, because just with equitable distribution or your divorce case, there are all of those factors the court considers. In custody world, there's also 16 factors the court will consider in deciding um, a custody arrangement for the children. One of those 16 factors is the well-reasoned preference of the child. So there's two components here, you know, that... um, the child's preference is just one of the 16 factors, but what it says is well-reasoned preference. This is big because that could be that a child has established a well-reasoned reasoned preference much earlier, perhaps at age six or seven or eight, um, but it has to be well-reasoned. It can't just be, you know, I like to go to dad's house because dad has a pool and it's super fun there and we have a great time and we do all of these activities, whereas at mom's house, maybe there's more rules and And that's why I like to go to dad's house. That's not a well-reasoned preference. I mean, the court's looking at maybe more serious things like homework's not getting done at a parent's house or the child is being left alone at an inappropriate age, um, that they're not getting fed well, they're malnourished, they're um, exhausted, there's some negligence going on there. Um, Those are more of the, the things that the court would be looking at, not necessarily just it's more fun at one than the other. Um, So keep that in mind. First of all, there's no specific age in the law where a child can make that decision. Um, It's just one factor out of the 16 factors and it has to be well-reasoned. Number nine, 50% of marriages end in divorce. I think at one point I heard somebody ask me, um, is it 60% now? And my answer is, I have no idea. I don't actually know how they could even track that because it used to be, I read some where that it used to be they would look at how many marriage licenses were applied for and compare that with the number of divorces that were filed in a particular year to kind of figure out a percentage. And that's not indicative at all, right? Because the same people that are applying for a marriage license are conceptually not the same people who are applying for the divorce in the same year. So I don't even know how they would necessarily track that. I should probably do a little more research into that one. But my understanding is no, that's not actually a real percentage. Um, There's no real way to track it. So um, I, I don't even know like why it's important anyway, but that's definitely something I hear quite a bit. Number 10, it matters who files for divorce. So in other words, it's beneficial to be the plaintiff in a divorce action. And the same with custody. It's beneficial to be the plaintiff in a custody action. So what I will often hear is, well, I should be the one that files first, right? 
it really doesn't matter. Um, in some other cases, maybe in some civil matters, it matters. Um, it does not in family law. So the court does not look at, okay, if you're the plaintiff, that means um, you're giving up on the ma- on the marriage first. Or if you're the plaintiff, that means you didn't do anything wrong, that the defendant was the one who was at fault in the marriage. Um, they don't look at that. They look at it as a caption. It is literally, if you file, you just happen to be the first spouse listed. Um, you get no leg up in filing first. Um, there's no real benefit to it. All it does is assign you a case number where we will file everything else from there on out. So there is no benefit to being the plaintiff and being the first to run to the courthouse um, to file. Um, the caveat to that is there may be a benefit if there is a question as to jurisdiction, um, but that's far more compl- complicated than what we're trying to get into with these myths, but there, there could be something there. Um, so that's number 10. Number 11 is... Only rich people need to get prenuptial agreements. This could not be further from the truth. Um, what, I, what I hope people have learned over the last couple of years and into the future is that prenuptial agreements are a fantastic tool to be a roadmap to a successful marriage as opposed to the opposite um, as like a fallback in the event of, you know, things go sour. A good prenuptial agreement does both. Um so you don't have to be rich. You don't have to have a substantial amount of assets that you need to account for in a prenuptial agreement. A lot of young people are actually entering into prenuptial agreements I've been seeing um, because they want a roadmap for a successful marriage. Um, they want to know that their 401k that they're going to earn during the marriage, if they're both working, is going to be their own. They want to know that there perhaps is just going to be a 50-50 split down the middle and they want to abide by that. Um, so there's a lot that you can do with these prenuptial agreements in kind of marriage preparation. Um, they're also great for people who maybe have a change during their marriage. Um, so maybe they're already married and both are working, but then when they have children, they make the joint decision that somebody's going to stay home. Then you can enter into a postnuptial agreement to kind of outline what that means financially for the stay-at-home parent. Maybe that means that each year they're going to contribute a specific amount of money into the stay-at-home parents retirement fund to account for the fact that that person is not working. So there's a lot of planning that can go into these prenuptial and postnuptial agreements. And it's not like it used to be with just you have a bunch of inheritance or you have a bunch of assets that you need just to make sure they're protected in the event of a divorce. That is that is still important, but it's not as important as the actual like planning process of the marriage. Number 12, the wife automatically gets alimony in a divorce case. Again, not true. Um, There are, again, several factors the court considers when determining whether or not alimony is appropriate in Pennsylvania. Um, A lot of times we're looking at budgets or spending plans to see if there is a discrepancy in what income is coming in and expenses going out. But there's so much more to it. There are factors involved. Um, It's not... a a primary remedy, it's a secondary remedy in Pennsylvania. So what that means is we're first going to look at what are the assets, what are the debts, and how are they going to be distributed? And only if there's not enough to um, make the lower wage earner um, to be self-sufficient financially, would we look at whether or not alimony is is um, something we need to, to determine. Um, so it's not an automatic, it's a secondary remedy, it's not a given, and a lot goes into determining whether or not it's appropriate, how long it will be paid, and how much. Number 13, if one spouse moves out of the residence, they have conceptually abandoned the house or the family. 
this is another big one I get. Um, you know, nobody enjoys living in discord. So when you're to the point where you're actually ready to move forward with a divorce, a lot of people come in to me and they're still living with their spouse and they're just miserable, right? It feels like you're walking on eggshells, there's tension in the home, whatever it may be. And their first question is, how can I get out or how can I get my other spouse out? Um, and there is some hesitation because they're afraid that they're going to abandon the house and therefore waive any claim they may have to the house. That's not true in Pennsylvania. Just because you leave um, because you're, you know, getting a divorce does not mean you have abandoned the house or the family or you waive any claim to custody or waive any claim to the value of the home. It just means that you are leaving right now. Now, true abandonment um, under the law is that you would literally like disappear. Um, nowhere to be found for a significant period of time. Um, but that's not what most people are doing. Most people are going to stay at a family's residence or a friend's residence or renting an apartment or something like that in the interim until they figure out all of uh, the settlement of the divorce. So that's not abandonment. Um, number 14 and the last one is that parties must appear in court to get divorced. So still I get the question, even when I do my mediations or even when I do collaborative cases or out of court negotiations and settlement, um, parties will often, or clients will often ask me, okay, so I still have to go to court, right? No, you really don't. Um, when you choose those out of court processes, you literally never have to step foot into a courtroom. Um, in order to finalize your divorce. All of it can be done either um, outside of court where the attorney only has to file specific documents and some of that can be done by e-filing. So um, you really don't have to go to court even if you reach resolution outside of court. Thank you for listening to the Donuts and Divorce podcast. If you have a question or comment, please feel free to email me your feedback at doneal at boklawfirm.com. I do make every attempt to read everything, but I can't necessarily respond directly to you. I may use your questions and comments as inspiration for new shows. Remember that the Donuts and Divorce podcast is intended as a general reference and is considered general advertising. Any listener should check for changes in any applicable laws and should consult with an attorney on any legal issue. No attorney-client relationship is formed by listening or participating in this podcast. The information provided does not constitute legal advice and any thoughts or commentary by the podcasting lawyers is provided as a service to the community and does not constitute solicitation or legal advice. Any information provided is on an as-is basis and the lawyer and law firm make no warranties and disclaims all liabilities for damages resulting from its use. Nothing provided in the podcast should be considered a substitute for advice of competent legal counsel. And in the event the podcast receives emails about the subject matter, no attorney-client relationship is created via that email communication. Thank you. Thank you.